Colossians 2, 2 and 3. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thanks, Jason. Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see you. Um, Can we maybe turn this up a little bit? I like to hear me really yelling at people. Thank you. Good. Hey, uh, I'm glad that Colt McCorkle was here last week. Uh, That was a great blessing for me, uh, and I've heard from many that it was a great blessing to them. He was a longtime member and leader in our church, and that was actually the first time he was able to come and preach here with us. Um, He's been scheduled to preach several times, but things have come up, so I'm pleased to say in Jesus' name, the curse of Colt not being able to preach is broken officially. I've named it and claimed it. Jesus has brought Colt to preach, and... uh, I uh, hope that he can come back uh, many more times. If you weren't able to hear that, I encourage you to go on our website and listen to it. He spoke from the prophet Zephaniah, and his theme last week was joy. Each week in Advent, which is the four weeks that lead up to Christmas, it's a season of waiting. It's not quite a, hey, how are you, Merry Christmas. It is time where we sing songs like we've done tonight that say, come Lord Jesus, we're waiting for you, we're waiting for you to come. It's a season of looking back to the first Advent, which is from the Latin word that means a coming or an arrival. But we also look forward to the time that he will come again. And so I've been using the texts from the prophets that speak as if he hasn't come the first time. They look forward. And tonight we're going to see that Micah, who is the voice of the prophets, saying, wait, wait, people. He's looking forward even 700 years to the time when Jesus, who has come and is coming, was born or will be born in a city called Bethlehem, an insignificant little place to a people who are abandoned, and he speaks of one who is a shepherd. So our theme tonight is love, and I'm so grateful for Robin for sharing um, how Jesus is her love and how she experiences his love in our church. I'm grateful for Jason who read that beautiful passage in Colossians which speaks of the love that knits us together in Christ, And Christ, who is the mystery, the treasure of knowledge and wisdom, who has been revealed in the most insignificant and lowly of places, which is why it's such a mystery we can wait and anticipate and look at with wonder. Well, before we get into Micah, uh, why don't you just take a moment with me to just kind of take a deep breath, and uh, I know this season... uh, may not feel like waiting. It feels like a lot of hurry. You're running out and getting last-minute Christmas gifts. You're trying to get your plans together for this week. You're finishing up some work. So why don't you just take a breath and take a moment to say this, to pray this in your heart like we just sang. Lord, I come to you this evening. And then say these words as a prayer. Lord, I invite you to draw near to me. 
Because, Lord, we know that you are here. We know that you are near. So we ask that we would be aware of your nearness. Awake to your love. And may we have ears to hear the voice that tells us to just breathe and rest and wait for you to do amazing things in our presence and in our midst. So Lord, we come knowing that you have come and are coming. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Micah chapter 5. We're going to look at a few other passages tonight, but Micah 5, 2 to 4 is where we're going to be this evening. It's going to be on the screen, and uh, I invite you to grab a Bible in front of you as you follow along to those other places we'll be tonight. Let's look at this brief little passage that Micah gives to us. But you, Bethlehem, Ephathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Micah, a prophet, wrote these words 700 years before the baby we will celebrate on Christmas Eve was born in Bethlehem. But he wrote these words in a brief section of a brief little book that can seem pretty wild if you read it front to back. Because what Micah does is alternate these warnings that say things like, guys, for decades you have wandered down the wrong way. Get your stuff together. He's warning his people. But then he alternates that with the symbol or a sign of hope that says, Even though you ain't got your stuff together, God still loves you and cares for you. Though you are in a season that you've got to recognize is painful. He's alternating these warnings, these threats of their present circumstance with these signs and words of hope. And this section we're looking at tonight in chapter 5 is the climax of this warning and hope contrast. And Micah is going to say that from insignificant places to an abandoned people, he will send a shepherd. But here's the problem. As he's saying these words around 700 B.C., there is no shepherd that looks like the shepherd he's speaking of. They are hoping it's coming soon, this shepherd. But all they see around them are the enemies and bullies closing in and their present circumstance looks pretty bleak. Waiting is hard, but try waiting 700 years. Waiting is hard, but try for some of you seven days. 
we're going to laugh and watch our kids go around the trees, your nieces, nephews, grandchildren. If you've seen them around presents this week, watch how well they wait. You know it because you did it too. You thought you were some kind of present sneaking ninja. You'd go in there and try to lift the scotch tape just so and put it back. But the problem with wrapping paper, it's a terrible design, is that stuff's going to get peeled off and you're busted totally. It's hard to wait. So when we look at prophets, first of all, we need to read them as kind of a collected work of the messages they're saying. And then lots of times people or followers of them come back and try to put them in order. So when you're looking at these sayings, it's hard to wait 700 years. It's also hard to wait seven weeks. But the prophets who call us to wait don't call us to wait. They call us actually to anticipation. It's that active waiting. It's a waiting that says, even if this is a long way off, I need to trust my God enough to where that future informs my present. So even when Micah is speaking and there are enemies at the gate that are attacking Israel and the shepherd, the king that they have, is getting busted up and beaten down, even though that is their present, Micah speaks a voice that says it's not just waiting, it's an anticipation that God will do what he's promised to do. So let that trust for what he will do get you through this time today. Let your future, let the big picture inform the little picture. The waiting isn't waiting, it's an anticipation. It means you're sure of what you're waiting for is coming. So even though the situation is bleak for God's people, this word of hope should color in the darkness like a light that's dawned, like we saw a few weeks ago in Isaiah. Even though the shepherd doesn't look like this shepherd, He trusts that God will send one. Let's look back at verse 2. Where is this shepherd coming from? He's coming from the very least place. You've heard of backwoods towns. This is pretty backwoods, y'all. And it's got a crazy name. Let's look at it in verse 2 of chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephaphtra. You like that? Nobody's naming their baby after that. (laughs) Ephaphtra is a clan. It's a clan that's basically the zip code of uh, this larger region, which is Bethlehem. We all know Bethlehem. We know Bethlehem now because we have the shepherd who came. But when you're Micah speaking 700 years before the first advent of Jesus, you have a small northern out-of-the-way town and then a smaller out-of-the-way little tribe or clan. From here, a ruler will come. That's what Micah says. Though you're small among the clans of Judah. It's not just that they had a low population. It's that they're pretty insignificant. Out of you, out of this place, from Bethlehem, will come for me. So before he ever says, hey Israel, things look bad, just wait, someone's coming to rescue you. He says, firstly, they're coming for me. They're going to rule, he's going to rule for me. Then he says, And this person coming for me will be your ruler. My guy, my king, will rule over my people. 
Then he says, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, we can read and say, yes, because Jesus was God and we know this and he's the pre-existent Christ and we can dress it up in theology and we can jump straight to John chapter 1 that says, in the beginning was the Word. And it's beautiful. But what they have in mind here is his origins are from old, from ancient times. He's trying to say, this is from a famous family tree. So you see Bethlehem, you see this clan, and it's little, it's insignificant. But he will come from that little insignificant place from a very famous family tree. He's a descendant of the most famous person from that little insignificant clan, and his name is David. David was a shepherd, and the shepherd that will come from David's town will be the ideal shepherd, the ideal king that God's people have been waiting for. And it'll come from a place they least expect it because here's what. God loves to honor the humble and despised. He loves to lift up the poor, the broken, the hurt, the sick. Because when they're lifted up and they're honored... This whole American phrase of lifting somebody up by their own bootstraps, which doesn't make sense to me. Maybe I don't know what bootstraps are. They, he loves to honor them because when they're lifted up, people can say, wow, their God must really be something. Because by all appearances, this is an insignificant place and surely nothing good can come from there. In fact, that's what they said about Jesus when he came from another podunk region, city called Nazareth. God loves to honor the humble and despised. You remember David, that famous family tree from which this ruler will come from, this city. You remember that Israel had a big, strong, proud king. He looked the part. He was the first king of Israel. But when Samuel came because God said, Saul, you've blown it, man, You're no longer going to be king. Samuel goes to find another king. And he goes down the line. He says to go to Bethlehem, to go to this little clan. And this man named Jesse, who is David's dad, lines up all his big, strong, handsome sons. And Samuel just starts ticking down the list and saying, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. And he says, well, this road trip stunk. Do you have any more sons? And then Jesse says, yeah, I've got one, but he's out tending the sheep. He's a shepherd. He's my littlest one. You don't want him. So he comes, and he says, this is God's man. Because God is about humbling and honoring the despised. God made a covenant with him, a long-term plan, because the Lord loves the least. He makes the insignificant significant. And the shepherd that was prophesied, you see him do this. You see him follow suit of the God who honors the humble. You see him seek out the tax collector who is small in stature, up in a tree, and despised by everyone. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat at your house tonight. That was a major popularity boost for little Zacchaeus. You see him honor the least, the abandoned, the sick, the demon-possessed, the outsiders. You see him honor the woman with bleeding, lost in the crowd. He seeks her out and he honors her. He says, your faith has made you well. 
We see this in Jesus honoring the insignificant. So when I talk to you guys, when I think of my own self, I think one of the pervasive problems in our culture is this idea of significance. Pastor Ramon Popov in Russia, he's fond of saying things like, success is not a kingdom word. He told this to our leaders. Success is not a kingdom word. That's an American word. He says, significance, trying to be somebody, that's not kingdom. That's American. We come from a culture that wants to size you up and say, because you do this, you must be somebody. Or because your church is this size, it must be really something. Because you go and do this or that, man, you must be on it. That's not kingdom. Kingdom is a God who is near to the lowly and lifts these people up. Well, man, I don't have a job. Well, I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Well, I don't have four million Twitter followers. We kind of laugh, but somewhere along the line, that temptation to be significant, which is a close brother to that other terrible way of being, and that's comparison, trying to size yourself up to somebody else, is a way that doesn't trust that God can make the insignificant significant. And in your eyes, you are tremendously significant because the Savior of the world came from the small, least of these clans in a beat-up nation so we can look and say, God can really do everything. The Lord truly loves the least. He doesn't just love the the least. He loves the abandoned. This king is promised, but then we get this jarring quick reminder, a clarification that says this ruler is not coming today. Look at verse 3. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. If you flip back to verse 10 in chapter 4, Micah says, writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You're being kicked out of your home. You're writhing in agony. This is supposed to be something that's joyous. But instead, you're in labor, you're writhing, and you're not in your home. And just so he can clarify, he says, you will go to Babylon. Hey, this shepherd will not come and save you in the way you want today. You will go to Babylon, and there you will be rescued. But first, what do you have to do? Go to Babylon. You know why waiting is hard? Because waiting stirs up all these questions, all these fears, because we don't know what's next, but all we know is that right now the darkness is closed in. And the questions we begin to ask are, God, where are you? But I think the Advent question, the question of anticipation, trusting that even though it doesn't look good now, God will see us through to the end. The Advent question is not, God, why? God, where are you? God, fix it now, please, will you? The Advent question is, God, what will you do? God, what are you doing? I don't believe that every bad thing in your life happens because God made it so. But you know what we see a lot in Scripture? I was having this conversation with one of you guys this week. 
We see places where the enemy, demons, where the consequences of sin and sickness, they have their moment. They have their day. Like Micah's saying, you're going to have a time in Babylon. And God will allow this. Hear me. God will allow this. And I hate that it's true, but it's true. And I shouldn't hate that it's true, and here's why. Because when Paul had a demon afflicting him physically, don't ask me to explain it any more than that in 1 Corinthians 12, he asks God and says, will you take it away, please, now? No? Will you take it away the second time? Will you take it away the third time? He's experiencing a Babylon. He's experiencing the darkness of the now. He's experiencing uh, some kind of abandonment because we want God to be right here, our best buddy, our genie in the bottle, always doing great now. But Paul got to a place where he said, okay, God, what are you doing? And God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So Paul says, Man, that really stinks, God. No, he says, therefore, I will let that reality, God, what are you doing, inform my present reality, and I will say, therefore, I guess I'm going to boast in my hardships, my weaknesses, my insults, my sufferings, because when I am weak, then I am made strong because God lifts up the least. God lifts up the humble. Even when we feel abandoned, he uses, he never wastes the darkness and he can still restore us. Because yes, we have to go to a Babylon sometimes. But you know what Micah said? From there, he will rescue you. You don't need rescue when you're not in a Babylon. You may not have a reason to sing when you're in the palace and everything's great in Jerusalem. But my goodness, can he use the darkness and the consequences of this fallen world. And if he doesn't fix it now, by God's grace, may we be a people that says, I will look ahead when you make things new. And let that future inform my today. But let me tell you this. In case you think that I should just say buck up and get on with it and God will fix it, I will be there to cry with you in the darkness and in the Babylon today. I've been in some hospital rooms this last week and I had a dream awaken me in the morning, early this morning. I didn't think I was going to share this. I had a dream awakened this morning, gathered around a group of people who I had seen that I know are praying for a specific need that seems really dark and really bleak. And a dream I had this morning, I was praying, not because I'm super spiritual. I'm telling you, I just, I don't have enough time to pray in the day, so I dream in my, I pray in my dreams. No, this is a very unusual dream for me, I tell you. Usually I'm off fighting orcs in Lord of the Rings. I had this dream and I was praying. And I was saying things, or really it felt like I was hearing things. And, it was, and, and there were these phrases that said, I've heard that God has raised people from the dead. We've seen him heal people. We've seen him provide for people. We've seen him at the last second rescue people. We've seen him break the chains of addiction. And it was as if my subconscious 
or the Lord even, if I dare say, is trying to wake me up to this reality that says, even if he doesn't, we know he has, and let's still pray he will. Because there's two things I'm convinced of. That God is strong, and he loves us. And if he won't fix it today, see, God loves us. And he will not waste it, and he is after your good and he will bring you home to the end. And one day beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know that all will be made new. Israel still got to be abandoned. They're waiting in the dark times. Until when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Today we grieve but someday he'll return those who've been scattered. He'll return and shore up the few that remained. And we see this movement that the Lord loves the abandoned. He cares for the uncared for. And he will give us new hope and others of us will return. But for those people, those Israelites, it wasn't today. He cares for the uncared for. And this shepherd loves the least. He loves the abandoned. So let's see about who he's, who he is. Let's skip those two pictures. We don't have time for that. Let's look at verse 4 together. At long last, Micah is going to give us a glimpse of this shepherd who is still a long way off. He will stand and he will shepherd his flock. He will stand and he will shepherd his flock. Shepherd is a common analogy for Israel. Actually, it was a common analogy for a lot of people in the ancient Near East. Because the shepherds, they cared for, protected, provided. They cared for sheep. So it was a natural that they would use that language for king. Micah calls him a ruler. But what the shepherd does and who the shepherd is, is someone who's supposed to lead and care for and provide for his sheep, his people. Micah uses that shepherd imagery a couple other times. I want to draw your attention, it's not on the screen, to chapter 2. This is another oracle or message of hope mixed in with those messages of warning we were talking about in Micah. Listen to what he says about this salvation that's promised in 2, 12, and 13. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. Think about that. The brothers will return and he's going to gather them back into the pen. Look what he says. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. We're talking about a little clan in a tough time with a lot of people kicked out, but it will throng with people again. Why? Because verse 13, the one who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. How can we get through the dark times today? Because the shepherd is not just the shepherd in the green pastures and the still waters. He's the shepherd that is walking there in front of us, even through the valley of the shadow. He's the shepherd that will lead us once again, if not today, to still waters. But he will not bail on us in the dark valley. 
He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He won't fail. In the majesty of the name of his God. So he's going to bring glory to God. And they, here's the people, will live securely. Not now are they secure. But one day. Then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. We're all about the now. Advent is a discipline of letting the then, the big picture, illuminate the small picture. And we see this movement from a little clan of a little people. And all of a sudden, this shepherd is going to lead us to a pen that's thronging with people. Well, who else is there going to be? His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And his sheep will too. The shepherd is Israel's king. But Israel's plan from the beginning. You can look way back to Abraham. Square one. Granddaddy Abraham. God's plan for Israel that through you. Insignificant, old, least of these, Abraham who packed up and moved to a new town where nobody knew who he was, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Did he mean that little tract of land right now in Israel? Or did he mean that from Abraham, from Jacob, and all of these people on, David would come the shepherd through Bethlehem, through God's people, and do what Israel couldn't, and that is bless all Nations. There's this movement from abandonment to return, from the least to the ends of the earth. And let's jump ahead to John chapter 10 and see what Jesus says of himself taking on the posture and title of shepherd. He is the good shepherd. Let's look at verse 11 as we near the end. Jesus says this of himself to his people and any from the ends of the earth who are listening. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when the wolf comes, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Israel had had one shepherd after another who didn't care. Micah is speaking of the shepherd who put his own interests, his own political agendas ahead of his people. And he ran and the wolf came in called Assyria and had their way. Jesus, after 700 years, is the shepherd that was promised. It took a lot of bad shepherds. It took a Babylon. But God was present through it all. And he is present in the person of Jesus who says again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. So I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. 
The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, but only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is a good shepherd. Jesus laid down his life. He experienced the exile of taking on all the darkness and sin and he laid in the grave in the exile of separation. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that he experienced all the dark and rot and worst violence that we could ever imagine. But God made good on his promise and he raised him up again. And it's because he is raised, it's because he came, it's because he is coming that we can let his heart, his power help inform our waiting. So we anticipate this shepherd and we anticipate that he will lead us each step of the way and will celebrate each grace no matter how insignificant. And we trust that he'll lead us to the end because love doesn't leave. So may we be a people who love the least, who love the abandoned, and love God even when it's hard and we're asking all of those questions. May we be a people who are clinging to him, clinging to hope, and clinging to one another as sheep to the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your King Jesus. King Jesus who is better than King Hezekiah. King Jesus who is better than King Herod who wouldn't bow his knees because he never thought God would align with the lowly in a manger. We thank you for Jesus, our King, who's better than all the politicians who look out for their own interests rather than the interests of others. Thank you for Jesus, our King, our Shepherd, who's better than the shepherds of this church or any church. We're just under shepherds, under His reign. We pray that we would all, shepherds or otherwise, love like Him, live like Him, trust like Him, Pray like Him. Bless like Him. In this season and every season. Because it's not just an Advent, we're waiting. May we be eager for that kingdom to come brought by our King. And until that day, may we live as citizens of that kingdom. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. May your heart be broken tonight for the very things that break the heart of God. And may that, may that pain propel you to love. Love those who believe and think differently than you. Love those who are lonely. Love those who are struggling. Love those who curse you and those who have hurt you. Love those who are unlovable. And love those who cannot return the favor. In a world that is waiting 
for a gift wrapped in shiny paper. Be a reminder that the greatest gift of all was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a dirty manger. Listen intently for the coming cry from that manger. Wait expectantly and live into the words of Micah as he instructed us to act justly, to love tenderly, and to walk humbly with our God. Go in peace and be a people of radical love.